Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. that you're doing right by your body teeth look like this after you've had a wonderful delicious smoothie I added some of the bee pollen I got from the farmers market on the island and I also added a little bit of probiotic powder that I got from hardy nutritionals that I was taking on its own and I stopped taking it for a while and now I'm gonna use it up but let me go brush my teeth. This is disgusting. Much better. Of course, I used my salt toothpaste. My favorite thing. One of my favorite things. And this morning, I'm off to a good start. I did a few minutes of neck traction. I got it from a chiropractor. And then a little bit of... It's also called a spunk, though I don't think this is the spunk brand. So just sort of wakes up my skin and I'm sure there's lots of benefits as well. Improving circulation, things like that. I jumped on my trampoline, I had my smoothie, I'm drinking Yerba Mate. And I got some new Yerba Mate in the mail because I went to the place I usually get it and they didn't have any. So I had to revert to online and often it's easier for me to just buy things online. And another thing I bought online today that I was going back and forth around buying, but then I found it for about 25 US dollars with shipping is a heart rate monitor ear clip. And I use this chest strap heart rate monitor for doing my coherence breathing and I did about 10 minutes of that today on the hardest setting. I was on hard and now I'm on extremely hard or something. Ooh, that sounds dirty. But but my line of thinking is that it's something I could add to my magical backpack to show people some of these physiological hacks as I'm going about my day as part of the design of moving about in these ways and sharing them. So, so it's a lot easier to show someone with an ear clip versus having to put something right under their pecs or boobs and and wet this part so I wouldn't really want to wet this and put it on somebody else's skin if I don't have to and sometimes I just wet it with my spit a little bit because it doesn't take much at all to do that so that was my line of thinking there and I could wait till I'm officially starting a business and then use it that way but whatever I just like to do things when I do things and when I was on the island I had my most calm session of 
meditation with the muse headband. And I finally passed level nine, which is needing to meditate around the same time for three days in a row. And it was interesting because I got 75% calm. And it was the most calm ever, yet that was the night that I accidentally killed the bee. So during that 15 minute session, my mind was actually energetically a little bit disturbed. I was still with that energy of mourning the loss of the bee, yet I was 75% calm. So I'm wondering what this is all about, especially because when I got home last night, I did another 15 minute session to get the three days in a row. And I felt that I was more calm than when I got the 75% calm. And I was thinking about the bee, not really thinking, but still disturbed because it had just happened. And so I was surprised when I saw that I got 56% calm. And my brain was more in the active state. I had more recoveries from the active state. And I was thinking, well, what's that all about? And the thing that I like about this Muse headband is creating some of my own meanings and discoveries from it about my brain and my being. Not only using it the way they're saying, focus on your breath. And I wasn't focusing on my breath when I was pondering the bee. I wasn't at all. Yet, it showed that I was in this really, really calm space. And I would attribute that partially to being so connected with nature, spending those two hours with a little being and caring for it and being so connected had a profound effect on my brain that even though I was really disturbed after, it showed that my brain was quite calm. And also I feel that the brain can be pondering something that's sad and disturbing. But if it's something meaningful to be sad about, perhaps the brain is still in a calm state. So if I was maybe ruminating on work or a certain person that I have a conflict with, I'm just making that up then the brain would likely be active. But I was, it felt like my brain was active, but it was active in pondering this deep connection with nature and what had happened. And so it was calm. What I'm trying to say, it was in deep resonance and activity, even though it was in a calm space, it wasn't showing it was active, though my brain was quite active. It was calmly active about something really deep and meaningful to me. And this is where I wonder about their algorithm for what they're trying to calculate, because I wasn't focusing on my breathing at all. My mind was kind of all over the place about the bee, but it showed it was very calm. I was not focused on 
my breath and my body and me, me, me. I was, I was considering this bee, this bee, 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 and being with the bee and how I had been with the bee for two hours and then it, it didn't have a good ending, but my brain was still calm because it was something so meaningful. And so that translated into the sitting quietly. So to me, it shows me that spending that time in nature has a profound calming effect on the brain, even if something kind of sad happens as a result. The connection is what matters, the intent to connect, the spending the time and the attention. It doesn't have to be that much time. Somebody doesn't have to spend two hours with one bee. But being in nature has that profound calming effect, is what I'm seeing because, like I said, my mind was active and I wasn't focusing on the breath like the like the coaching of the Muse app would say to do. And they I have talked to them on the phone and they said you can focus on other things too, but what I'm trying to point to is that it matters what we focus on. So generally our active mind is chattering on about this self, this me and its problems and its conflicts and what to do and what should I do, the shoulds. And all of that is an abstraction. It's not actual. It's not, it's a disconnection from the actual. So when they say focus on one's breath, it's connecting with something actual, which is the breathing. But I wasn't focusing on this one point of my breath going in and out. I was focusing on not even focusing allowing my mind to drift around around the meanings of what had happened in that space and time of communion with nature. And I had the highest calm score I'd ever had. So it's one thing to have a busy life and then sit down and focus on breathing and then try to force the brain to be calm by focusing on breathing or one can spend some time in nature and then put the headband on and see what kind of effect that has. And then one doesn't have to contrive this focusing on the breath as if that's something we can do during our daily life. We can't. We can do that in daily life to bring ourselves back to a calm space, but it's a trick to get us to be able to move in the ways of life that are unnatural to us. So by going and spending some time in something so natural, something so ancient and a part of us and we're a part of it as nature is calming. So I like that the headband allows me to see some of these possible relationships between how that time in nature had a profound effect on calming my brain. And to me, that's more important than can I focus on my breath for 10 to 15 to 20 minutes? when that's not really practical in life. And it's actually wonderful that we can breathe without needing to focus on it. So practicing focusing on those things that we naturally don't need to focus on is silly in a way. It can be helpful, but what it's trying to point to is bringing our attention, not necessarily focusing. Focusing on breathing is silly, but bringing our attention to something that's actual, which is our breath, but we don't need to focus on it in order for it to work. And the same would go for bringing our attention to nature. We don't have to focus on nature in order for nature to work, but by giving our attention 
paying with our attention to nature, something actual, something right there in front of us, the brain understands that. The brain doesn't really understand all this abstract blah blah conflict confusion going on in our brain. If it did, it would figure something out of it and it maybe would stop, but that's another story. So then what did I discover from feeling subjectively more calm, less less stuff going on in my mind when I was sitting the next day being back home and only getting a 50% or 56% calm score and I was a bit surprised. And I feel like it could have been my whole being noticing that I had traveled a distance and the disconnection from that really beautiful place I was in and being back in a small room with a bunch of stuff everywhere because all my stuff that I have with me is in one small room. So the brain was naturally less calm because the brain isn't separate from its environment. It's perceiving everything. So it's pointing to that nature is healing, makes the brain calm. So we could breathe and focus on our breath until our face turns blue. But if we have totally unnatural environments, it's going to make it a lot more challenging. So not everyone can spend an hour or two in nature or half an hour, but can we design life so at least some of it is? A lot of times when I edit my videos or do work, I'm walking through a park. So it looks kind of like, oh, this person's in a park and they're on their phone. But it's better for the body to do work in a park than do the same work sitting in a cube. So I'm just thinking of this now. It's sort of like harm reduction to the work that we're doing. We have to do certain work, but can we do it in a better environment? Can we do it in a park, in nature? I sometimes wonder why they don't have covered, semi-heated outdoor areas and parks with Wi-Fi and with plugs so people can sit and work there. Every single park that I've seen when there's an outdoor area that's kind of covered and here it gets too cold to work, there would need to be some kind of heat a little bit, but we're okay heating outdoor patios where we can sit and pig out on food that's really bad for us, but we can't heat a little park space where we might be able to do some work there. But there's never any plugs for whatever reason. It's like, don't come here to work. This is for a little bit of time on the weekend if you're lucky. And it was a bit harder for me to get into breathing coherence. But I did eventually get into breathing coherence. And then I was thinking of something, so I wrote it down. And it seems like once I get into coherence, I don't really have to follow the little breath thing exactly. Um, that's interesting. It seems like the body understands that one has the intention of putting it into coherence of heartbeat and breathing and then it knows how to do it. It creates the coherence without having the perfect breath rate. And I think that's part of 
what it's training the body to do because one isn't always going to be hooked up to the app. So I was thinking about this course I'm going to create a little bit. Well, a lot, but the thing that came to mind this morning was that there's certain tools that really do help the physiology. And one is the micronutrients, of course. Things like yerba mate instead of coffee, this complete coherence app, the muse headband. So one could move towards gathering some tools that help us create good physiology. We need to create that. It's not a passive thing that happens. If I eat McDonald's all day long, we know what happens. There's that movie, Supersize Me. So our gestures, our movements, what we put in our body is what we create as ourself. So we need to create our physiology and there's certain gestures and tools and things we can do to create that physiology because I had this sense that when we do those gestures and it doesn't have to be that much in the end of it all the physiology responds and creates optimal physiology and I was feeling like if we don't have optimal physiology then we start to have suboptimal psychology because in the example of micronutrients if I'm able to stay well on micronutrients, it shows that all these psychological problems and psychosis and problems with thought and everything like that goes away if I have more optimal physiology such as nutrients. So what I'm saying is the nutrients are required to stop this epiphenomenon of thought from ruling our life, thought as the self which is a rumination of our problems and moving in that field. So, so we can create physiology that will lessen this epiphenomenon of the self and perhaps increase the epiphenomenon of joy, perception, so many things. And the spoon is something that changes physiology and a rebounder and smoothies. And yes, all these things cost money but it might actually be able to be calculated the change in trajectory benefits. What necessary preconditions are we creating? If we create optimal physiology, then it could really change the long-term life that we live. And I was also thinking about the word why and it relates to what I've been talking about with living one's dreams if we don't design that and start to live that concurrently at the same time if we're starting to get our physiology in order if we don't get our manifest life in order and create that order in our life concurrently then what are we creating the optimal physiology for because that's going to want to be mirrored in the actual happenings of our life. And I was thinking about how I've said bipolar in order for what and also 
Simon Sinek says, find your why. And this morning it arose in my mind that that is not quite a correct statement. I feel it's more correct to say create your why. Because if we say find, that creates more seeking. And our main trouble is that we're seeking for something away from the moment. So by looking to find my why, I'm, I'm looking somewhere for it. It's not here right now. But if we create our why, then all of a sudden we're in the moment creating it. We're accessing our creative power, which is the power that we've lost because we're so busy seeking, looking, trying to find. Trying to find makes us blind. So saying find your why encourages more seeking. It's saying it's something out there to find. We have to create it. We have to create our why. And by creating optimal physiology, we're creating optimal physiology in alignment with life so we can live life. The why is in living life. And part of living life is creating the life that we're living and living that which we're creating. It's joyful to move into something that we've designed for ourselves to move through. Moving through the mental health system is moving through a system, a life that we have not designed for ourselves. And one of the reasons why we're moving through that is that we're not designing and living the life of our design. And that led me to realize in a way when I've been wondering about this whole harvest practice and body that I've been talking about this whole time. Practicing goes to creating. So it's harvest, create, and body. I've also said harvest, perception, gesture, and body. So creating is perceiving and gesturing towards that. So it's harvest, create, and body, and which is harvest, perception, gesture, and body. But in order to harvest something, we have to perceive it as well. So, fundamentally, it's seeing, seeing something and creating it. And I want to talk about the micronutrient studies that I read. They're pretty profound and Maybe I'll go into more studies because people love science. My main experiment is my living, experiencing, but it's cool to have the science to back it up. I've already moved into that reality of being on micronutrients and not medications, but reading some of the science will help reinforce what I've done by creating more context around the science of it, which adds to the web of context and it helps to make sense of everything. And something else I thought of was that when I launched this business or whatever the heck it is, and I had some really fun ideas around that, it'd be fun to have a launch party and then the launch party is also a coming off party. Coming out about coming off meds because I've only told one person back home. And so when I get to that nine month mark, it'd be cool to 
launch the business, which would be an online course summarizing some of this because I will likely share this 200 plus hours, but it'd be cool to break it down and make it digestible for people. At least that's what I'm feeling I want to do at this moment. I'm not sure. And then design that trip. And also, it's a launch party. And another word for launch is takeoff. So then part of the launch is taking off, which is going on a trip that I'll design as a fun and learning trip. And maybe taking people with me or meeting people along the way. I'm not sure how it'll look. So I'm going to keep on creating like I've been doing and play around with the magical backpack idea and different things like that. And all this is a different scaffolding. It's a different physiological scaffolding is a different life scaffolding. So as we optimize our physiology, which is our material scaffolding, we also need to optimize our unfolding of life and how we move through life and live it. And I was thinking about the 80-20 rule of how I probably use 80% of my voice to talk to myself in creative ways. And then this is creating the movement of my life as well and I was thinking about how there's probably a certain percentage of energy that we need to devote into designing and living our dreams so it's okay if I have a little job here a little job there or conversations that are at the level of the memories and me in the past but also designing in these other ways of being and communicating and the main way I've done that is communicating this way with myself for a little bit of time each day and it varies but that keeps me grounded in that way of communicating so then the fact that most of the world doesn't communicate in that way is okay but perhaps people will change the way they do so this is a different scaffolding for me a different communication and Right now, I communicate mainly with myself in this way. So we need to devote some energy as either time or energy. Because sometimes it doesn't matter about the time. We can have a burst of energy for five minutes that's more powerful than five hours. So if we have that burst and we, we harvest it, we create with it, we share something with it, that is creating the scaffolding of living in that different way, which is living according to that energy and what it directs, which is creative. So living creatively. So if we can spend some time harvesting and creating and embodying or some energy that moves us to create something each day, then we're creating this scaffolding of living creatively and living in different ways that to an outside observer might seem non-functional. Me talking to myself for hours a day might seem non-functional, but I see the function that it provides for me. So it doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter if 
people who live in a certain functionality called functional see certain things as non-functional. They may have a different function that we have to create. For example, spending two hours in nature seems to have a certain function on the brain of calmness that translates into daily life. So we might say, well, what's the point of nature? But we can show with a muse headband or something that it has a function and we can go to yoga class and we can breathe and we can do all this contrived stuff or we can just go be with something actual like nature and it's up to us to design what we want to participate with. So can we gesture ourselves back into our peak self from our peak map consciousness experience? We are disconnected from nature and responding mechanically to our own projections. We're living in an illusion. So part of the beauty of it is, is that you need to create your own scaffolding. No amount of me optimizing my physiology is going to optimize yours. You might be able to utilize some of the tools, but you need to do the gestures. And from that webinar listened to by Jamie Wheel on adaptive leadership, he said a good quote, and I don't necessarily like quotes so much, but it was by Colin Powell. And he said that leadership is the art of taking people down roads they don't want to go to places we all want to be. And I'm sure there's people out there, so I wouldn't say all. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who want their medications, have the med changes, go to psychiatrists, go to clinicians, go to the hospital. Some people want that. But I would think that a lot of people would love to feel healthy, have their wellness, design and live and create the life of one's dreams. And it's not necessarily a road initially that people want to go down. It's a scary road. But it leads to a place that we just might want to be. And another thing that I realized was that we get measured on our functionality based on a standardized life. Like they have standardized IQ tests that aren't necessarily accurate for measuring intelligence. Well, the standardized life isn't necessarily accurate for measuring functionality. So we need to create our new functions. These functions are, are new and higher than even the executive functions of the brain that we're currently aware of. And we can run better apps in our brain, which is creating our life instead of vegetating our life. And I was thinking again about what I've said before, creating the 100th manic syndrome. If 100 of us can master this, all of a sudden others will be able to master it without even trying. Because the 100th monkey syndrome is once the 100th monkey learns a skill, all the monkeys everywhere know that skill. Doesn't matter about time, distance, place, whatever. Affect the morpho-manic field. The morpho-manic field. And Jamie Wheel mentioned that they want more leaders leveling up quickly and I want more people of my neurotribe leveling up quickly. If that's what they want, if they don't want that, it doesn't matter. 
And my commitment to you is that you no longer be committed to the psych ward. And my certification is no longer being certifiable. Yeah, so it's going to be fun to design this course, I think. And maybe I will talk a little bit about micronutrients. We are moved by the force of habit, or we create with the power of perception. We either reenact the past or see an act and move in the new. We don't need to act on the world or react to the world, but act as the world. And asking what can I do is a projection. But asking what can I see, can I see, brings us in contact to what's now. And that's the only place that there is any power. Can we look at the now and as the now? So, micronutrients. I'm not sure how much depth I'm going to go into about this, but it could be quite a lot because it's important. And in one of the papers on micronutrients, I came across a study antipsychotic maintenance treatment time to rethink and I wasn't planning on starting with this one because this isn't a paper about micronutrients at all but it was referenced in one of the micronutrient papers and interestingly enough it says no funding was received for this work and I'm pointing that out because the findings are something that any kind of sponsored study likely wouldn't have found. And the study is by Joanna Montcrieff. And the summary points illustrate what this is all about. It says, existing studies of long-term antipsychotic treatment for people with schizophrenia and related conditions are too short and have ignored the impact of discontinuation-related adverse effects. So I know all about these because that's what I was experiencing when I was tapering off the meds and onto the micronutrients. But the product specialist warned me about how I would feel worse before I felt better as the nutrients were starting to do the work that the drugs were doing and then making me feel over-medicated. But the other thing is that there's an iatrogenic illness initiated by taking these drugs because we get addicted to them. So the withdrawal effects are often because we're adapted and addicted to these drugs, which we weren't before we started taking them. So then the withdrawal effects are from these adverse tapering responses because we're addicted to it. And the next point says, recent evidence confirms that antipsychotics have a range of serious adverse effects, including reduction of brain volume. And why this is huge for me to see in a study, it says recent evidence, antipsychotics reduce 
brain volume. And I'm planning on possibly going to this cognitive remediation conference in a month-ish. And it's going to be about all this hoopla, and I don't know what it's about. All this hoopla and apps and computer programs to help people get their cognitive decline due to their mental illness back. When this is saying here in this paper that antipsychotics shrink the brain. And of course, somebody's going to have cognitive decline if their brain is shrinking, for God's sakes. So in the cognitive remediation outline, it says, oh, cognitive remediation doesn't replace medications. So they're implying that people should always be on medications and then do this hoopla of cognitive remediation technique or whatever, which just creates more jobs for people to live off the fact that people are suffering, taking all these drugs. And down when the paper starts, it says that recent data from the United Kingdom indicate that 97.5 of mental health service patients diagnosed with schizophrenia are prescribed at least one antipsychotic. So people are on this stuff. Pretty much everyone is prescribed an antipsychotic. And then the current thinking is antipsychotic maintenance treatment, which means taking antipsychotics all the time daily for the rest of one's life, which is maintenance treatment. And this paper is about time to rethink because the next point in the summary points, the first really long term follow-up of a randomized trial found that patients with first episode psychosis who had been allocated to a gradual antipsychotic reduction and discontinuation program had better functioning at seven-year follow-up than those allocated to maintenance treatment with no increase in relapse. So this is huge because usually studies are short, so they might show that antipsychotics really help. But what it's showing is when they followed up with people from a randomized control trial, seven years later, the people that had reduced off of them we're doing a lot better. So that's part of the time to rethink the maintenance treatment aspect. Further studies with long-term follow-up and a range of outcomes should be conducted on alternatives to antipsychotic maintenance treatment for people with recurrent psychotic conditions. So I'm someone with a recurrent psychotic condition and I have found an alternative, which is micronutrients. So they're already out there. So that's just the summary points. And so it starts with talking about how bad the impact is and 80% of people diagnosed with schizophrenia have some ongoing social disability. And 97.5 are prescribed a, a drug. So it seems like if one gets a diagnosis, one has a 20% chance of not having some kind of social disability. So how do we up the chances that one will not have this social disability? And further down, it says the practice of antipsychotic maintenance treatment is based on research believed to have established that continuous antipsychotic treatment reduces the risk of relapse. Interpreting the evidence is not straightforward, though, and other data are beginning to emerge that suggest that long-term treatment may have an adverse impact on levels of social functioning. 
It is time, therefore, to review the practice of antipsychotic maintenance treatment and question whether it should continue to be the default treatment strategy in people diagnosed with schizophrenia or similar psychotic disorders. And I do want to read more of this later for sure, but one part that caught my attention for now, because I do want to get onto the good news of micronutrients first, is that it says that at seven-year follow-up, however, relapses had equalized between the groups and, and participants originally randomized to antipsychotic reduction and discontinuation were twice as likely to show a full social recovery as those allocated to the maintenance group. And so part of the question is, well, what are the alternatives to taking these long-term as a maintenance treatment? And it could be micronutrients. I won't have time to fully get into this, but I'll introduce it at least. I read four different studies. Three are about micronutrients, more so, and then one is related. And the first one is database analysis of adults with bipolar disorder consuming a micronutrient formula. This little blurb called Nutritional Approach to Bipolar Disorder. Do vitamins or minerals apart from lithium have mood stabilizing effects? Improving life expectancy in people with serious mental illness. Should we place more emphasis on primary prevention? So to sum up this paper, they're talking about how they're trying to introduce health monitoring for people that are diagnosed with a mental illness and on antipsychotics. So doing weekly weight monitoring during the first six weeks. And the dumb part of all of this, they're saying it's not really that helpful. What it really does is gets people on more drugs like drugs for cardiovascular disease, and then a lot of times there's no proof these drugs even work, but... And this part it says... And it's illustrated here where it says, a recent observational study evaluating the program found that those who attended were more likely to be diagnosed with diabetes, hypertension, and chronic kidney disease, and were most likely to be prescribed a statin than those that did not attend. So it's kind of like an interview to put people on more drugs. And then it says, however, several studies have indicated that physical health monitoring programs have limited benefits in terms of reducing morbidity and mortality. A systematic review of 16 randomized trials investigating clinical outcomes of physical health monitoring found that although screening programs resulted in an increase of the diagnosis of hypertension and hypocholesterol, Emia, they had no significant impact on cardiovascular morbidity or mortality. So it's just to make more money off the people who are slowly going to die faster anyway. And there's so much more of this paper. And this is where I found the link, the reference to the previous paper. And this one starts off by saying the same thing that I've talked about substantially reduced life expectancy compared with the general population. And then the other part I found really fascinating in this paper was 
under choice and duration of antipsychotic prescribing, it says, there is growing debate about whether long-term treatment with antipsychotics is beneficial for all patients with schizophrenia, not only because they're not only because of their adverse metabolic effects, but also their long-term effects on brain structure and dopamine receptor function. So this is the part that interests me about the Cognitive Remediation Conference. I doubt they're going to be talking about any of that. They're not going to be talking about how it messes up dopamine receptor function, how it has adverse long-term effects on the brain. They're blaming all that on the worsening of illness. And I don't have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, but this pisses me off. And under conclusion, it says people with serious mental illness die up to 20 years younger because of preventable physical disorders caused by the medications. They're saying what it does to the brain. They're saying there is also evidence to suggest that second generation antipsychotic treatment is associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease due to increased weight gain, dyslipidemia, and impaired glucose regulation. So it messes up our whole metabolism. And then this one about nutritional approach to bipolar disorder. So this part here by Dr. Simmons, who reports no financial or other relationships relevant to the subject matter of this letter. He had 19 patients, 12 of which showed marked clinical improvement on EMP, which is another micronutrient formula. So 10 marked responders, three moderate responders, 13 patients were able to completely discontinue psychiatric medication use over a mean of 5.2 weeks, range of 3 to 10 weeks, and remain stable on EMP alone. That's huge. Of the 12 market improvement, 10 have remained on EMP. Current follow-up mean length, 13 months. So over a year later, 10 of the 13 stayed on the micronutrient product. One of the three moderate responders has also continued on EMP, so that 11 of 19 patients have chosen to remain on EMP rather than psychiatric medications. Of the other eight patients, one was lost to follow-up, four discontinued EMP because of gastrointestinal problems, three had recurrent symptoms, stopped EMP, and resumed psych meds. So, 50% is a lot who can maintain themselves on EMP because that creates a different trajectory. All of a sudden, now the person doesn't have all these deleterious effects of the antipsychotics that are outlined in the paper I just mentioned before. So it's not a matter of managing on meds versus micronutrients and, oh, it's just better to take the nutrients. It has profound effects on one's life because now one doesn't have those 20 years of life lost due to the preventable physical ailments that are at least partially caused by the antipsychotics. And this is from 2003. When I was first hospitalized, I was put on olanzapine. And it's funny, the next letter here is olanzapine-induced fecal incontinence. I'm glad it didn't do that to me. It's funny, because it says, 
One can argue that the combined effect of olanzapine and other sedative drugs could have caused fecal incontinence, but complete recovery from incontinence followed withdrawal of olanzapine is sufficient evidence to document that olanzapine can cause fecal incontinence. So they have to add that to the list of possible side effects. Maybe they should change the name to Olanzapoopin. Oh my gosh, this is a funny last sentence. Our case would have been more convincing had we re-exposed the patient to experimentally prove the point, but we believed this approach to be unethical. <laughs> We're just going to give you some more olanzapine to see if you shit your pants again. How do you feel about that? And again, I want to go into all the papers in more details, but I'm just looking over them for some initial things. And this one on about lithium, which is from 2001. It has a really stupid part in it. The possibility of a nutritional alternative to drug treatment may raise hope and carry the risk of igniting public interest beyond reasonable bounds. Some patients may find it difficult to wait for nutrient supplements to be examined in humans for both efficacy and safety in controlled trials. And clinicians will need to help patients keep their enthusiasm from pushing usage beyond its scientific basis. And what I've read in these studies is that this stuff helps 50% of people and of those 50% of people they become pretty much completely symptom free and that's 25% that's a lot so I'm wondering what makes it so it's not higher than that for sure but for them to say, oh, you shouldn't do this. I'm pretty sure this Dr. Popper has changed his tune since then. This part's really funny too. If Kaplan and colleagues' preliminary findings are confirmed in controlled research, and if safety studies are favorable, what then? What if some psychiatric patients could be treated with inexpensive vitamins and minerals rather than expensive patented pharmaceuticals? Or what if some doses of psychiatric drugs could be reduced by the concurrent use of micronutrients? The economic implications for individual patients and for the pharmaceutical industry are difficult to overlook. Meaning it'll save patients a lot of money and it'll cost the pharmaceutical companies a lot of profits. Who gives a shit about the pharmaceutical companies' profits? Depending on how this line of research develops, clinicians and researchers may need to rethink the traditional bias against nutritional supplementation as a potential treatment for major psychiatric disorders. Who knew that science could be so funny? This one's really long and complex and there's a lot I want to talk about in it. So I think I'll wait till later, but it's showing how many people do well and I recommend reading it, it's so good. I just got a roll of sushi. Yam tempura roll. As an appetizer for the dinner I'm gonna make with some friends because it's not one of those types of dinners where you can eat as much as you want. And I've been so ravenous lately. And I crossed a little stream to sit here. And I was crossing a log and I stepped in the water. So my shoe's a bit wet. It actually felt kind of nice. 
I like to eat sushi by myself because I eat like a pig. I don't know how to use chopsticks very well, so I usually revert to my hands at some point. Mmm. So good. Random bits to talk about today. I do want to keep talking about the micronutrient studies, but not today. Yesterday, I drew a card in my power deck, just for fun, this deck, and it was card 13, which is feminine, and it says the world is bereft of feminine consciousness. To bring Mother Earth back to into balance, we must bring back our awareness of her. Language is a barrier between us, but women has always communed with women in an unspoken language. Her roots are entwined with the essence of Mother Earth, for she too is feminine. And a lot of my trip to the island was about this connection. And I was driving and I actually had the thought of how... women are more connected with nature. I don't know what it was exactly, but I think I was observing people fishing in the river with their big rubber suits on and they were men taking pleasure in pulling fish out of the water for some strange reason and there were no women doing that. So there's just a lot of actions that women don't do. It's not part of what we find interesting or talk about or do or whatever the heck. So. I can't remember what it was that arose in my consciousness about that, but then I drew this card later that day, which was saying the same thing. Let's see what card I draw for today. What's happening today? Today feels very embodied and peaceful, like I'm not thinking about what I need to do next. I'm just really there. I went for a walk with somebody and feeling really present. See what comes up. Creativity. Creativity is part of your future. Da 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 da. Today I'm not focusing so much on creativity, but that's been the theme for weeks. And one thing that that relates to is last night I was falling asleep, and. I felt the urge to get up and write something down. And I don't usually feel that. I usually have gotten out of my system or I drift off and don't bother to get up and write something down if something arises in mind. But I was writing out stuff for this thing I'm creating and I forgot to write down the word creativity. So I got out of bed and I added it right there because I wrote down altruism, nature, women like feminine from that card and other things and then i had to add creativity and another interesting thing about the feminine card that day was that i got an email from intentional peer support and it's one of their updates 
and then there was an article written by Sherry Mead and it starts with because many mental health practices are grounded in a pathological framework it is not uncommon for people's experiences to be interpreted as something wrong with them too often ignored are environmental relational cultural and spiritual considerations when these aspects of people's lives are not part of the helping conversation meaning becomes filtered through a very narrow lens and people begin to understand themselves as ill or the problem and then i realized that doesn't say anything about women but i scrolled down and this article does say something about women and i don't want to read everything she wrote but Later on it says, this process for building community and building voice is important as we begin to think about challenging some of the current trends in mental health. Actually, this article is genius. It says, although we are beginning to see more inclusion of consumer voice in policy and practice, it is a voice that's being decontextualized. People who end up using mental health services, by and large, have learned about mental health, mental illness, from having had their experiences interpreted for them. And so when they're asked questions like, what works? They often respond by saying, more services, and specifically more medications. After all, they've been told their very lives depend on them. I'm gonna save this article, because it's really good. So that's probably on the Intentional Peer Support website. And it's interesting that she languages it in that way because I've discovered all of that and I've done a process of talking with myself to create new context and new understanding about everything that I've experienced for myself and not buying into how I've had my experiences interpreted for me. So that article is really good. I recommend reading it. And the other feminine thing that came up yesterday was that I got an email from West Coast Mental Health Network Society and they have a message from the outgoing administration regarding women and female empowerment. And it says 70 to 80% of those who are drugged and incarcerated under the guise of modern day mental health care are women. Calling women mentally ill or crazy in order to subjugate and control to abuse and destroy is simply a practice that cannot be tolerated under, under any mental health system. The paternal big brother of patriarchy scenario that plays out over and over in history where women are subjugated, killed, kicked out, objectified, raped, pushed aside, forced into asylums, drugged and incarcerated is a karmic debt where everyone suffers in the end. The change needed is one where women are empowered to be women, to be who they are, and to think how they think. Forcing women into a male-dominated box only serves to create more war, pestilence, and destruction in the world that is simply not sustainable. So I'm not saying I endorse exactly those views or anything, but it was interesting that there was this feminine theme thing happening yesterday, and I got an email about that post. And I didn't know that 70 to 80% of people incarcerated via mental health are women. So if that's true, that's not good. And the good news is that one can end that incarceration for oneself. And that's the next little theme. I started watching something that I clicked on in Ryan Eliason's emails. He sends a lot of emails and I think I watched the first thing ever 
months and months and months ago and I haven't watched anything since. But this one said, free training how to become a virtual coach. Since I'm considering framing my creation as coaching in some way, I thought, okay, well, I'll click on it. And it's by Eben Pagan. And I've watched half of the first half an hour video. And it was interesting. He was saying that coaching helps with transitions in life and that we go through a lot more transitions in life nowadays because our lives are more complex or we change jobs more, change relationships. So we as humans experience a lot more transitions than we used to. And they said coaching is supporting someone through a transition in their life. And it reminded me a little bit of when I was on this committee for the health authority sitting as a person with lived experience and it was called the transitions committee and it started out all beautiful and speaking about wonderful things about the transition is about the person and person-centered transitioning and all these wonderful areas of one's life and then pretty quickly it moved into this committee is about transitioning people, whether they say they're ready or not, from their psychiatrist care at the mental health center to their GP or general practitioner. So this was the mandate of the province. It was a higher mandate. So it was more about creating a document for the clinician to fill out when the person was being transitioned and all the little rules and regulations around it. And one of my points that I raised was that, and I feel this is true, that if somebody is really fully being supported in all areas of their life, they will naturally transition. They'll naturally transition to a GP. They'll naturally transition from the hospital to community. And I think they were saying that in other areas of the world, people get mental health help from their GP and not this very specialized mental health treatment. But the trouble is that a lot of the psychosocial supports are tied in with whether you're seeing a psychiatrist at the mental health center. So it's really complicated. But I said in that meeting, I said, I'll transition myself. I don't need, when I'm ready and I'm well, I'll transition myself. I don't need somebody to fill out paperwork. I'll just go to my GP. I'll say, thanks, this was wonderful, bye-bye. If somebody needs all this hoopla to transition to a GP, they're probably not ready. And then they went ahead and experimentally transitioned a bunch of people from the more specialized care of psychiatry with the clinician and all of that and transitioned to people and transition a bunch of people to GP to see what would happen. Because, oh, they can come back, and if they come back within six months, they can have their file reopened without going through a big intake interview and all that traumatizing stuff of trying to convince someone and wait to get help when, when someone needs help. And um, I don't know if this is totally true, so don't believe what I'm saying here exactly, but... From my experience and from the bits I did see, I knew somebody who was transitioned to a GP who ended up ending their life. And then I ended up in the hospital shortly thereafter because it was really traumatizing that they just create these wonderful ideas of transitioning people to GPs and then somebody loses their life because they didn't have a clinician. And as 
crappy as that care is a lot of times, it can be a real fast track to get someone into a hospital, which is never fun and is traumatizing, but it can be a safe place where someone is unable to harm themselves. And then, you know, all the harm, it's really complicated. But anyways, my point is that we can successfully navigate the transition out of the entire system. Not, oh, well, I'm doing better, so I'm going to transition all my medical care and my prescriptions and everything to my GP, and I'm going to see my GP for all that instead of the psychiatrist. I have stepped outside all of that. I was never transitioned to a GP because I transitioned myself off the meds. I transitioned myself out of the whole system. And we as labeled people, we have unique areas of life that we're working on and unique transitions. And we could think, well, I'm doing better. I'm going to not need to see my psychiatrist. I can go and get my prescription drugs from my GP or we can be done with all of it. We can transition ourselves out because if we don't transition ourselves out of all of it then they'll transition us to a GP who has even less knowledge about helping us taper off this crap. They'll never recommend that we taper off this crap very very rarely. So yeah I don't know if I should have said all of that but the word transition in terms of coaching made me remember my time being on the transitions committee and feeling like, wow, maybe something can be done to change the system to make it better so people have smoother transitions from this type of service to that type of service. How about stepping outside all of it? How about transcendence? I was reminded of something else regarding this transition-y thing and I want to put it in there that I made the point that it would be better to tell people new to the system this more intense psychiatric care and the clinician and everything is about a two-year process. Set up those expectations from the start. But don't transition the poor people who maybe only know their psychiatrist and their clinician and only know a system that says you're going to be in this for the rest of your life. And then are all of a sudden told you're going to be transitioned to a GP. And a huge percentage of people don't even have a GP. And then a lot of it was created around billing codes in order for clinicians to speak to GPs. So again, all this money going into conversations between professionals to transition these people. Let those people age out or whatever happens. And set up a new system for the new people coming in but they didn't do that and again it doesn't matter because it all can be transitioned out of we can step out of the current trends in mental health we can step out of the currents that will drown us and another thing in the Sherry Mead article, she says, We come to the table not just as recipients of service or as people labeled with mental illness, but as people who have rich, meaningful lives. People whose experiences have multiple contexts and we can begin to rock the boat. Quote, it is only when the force of the group 
and tradition loses its grip, the individual can reflectively question the legitimacy of norms and move beyond merely conventionally justified beliefs and values. Which was a quote by Meehan, whoever that is. So many different things going on. The other interesting thing that happened this morning was that for Mew's brain sensing headband level 10, it says do one in the morning, a Mew session, and do one in the evening. So this morning I did my rebounding, I did my spunk, I did my traction, had a smoothie, had a shower, I did 10 minutes of coherence breathing, and then I sat down to do my Muse session. And I did 10 minutes. And I was sitting there. The light was on. And it wasn't completely quiet. And I was sitting there really feeling like my creative brain was going. And I was thinking about what I'm creating and everything I've been writing down to try to get it organized about what I'm going to create for this business proposal to get into this program and I was feeling like I really want to have the means to hire a friend of mine to work with me because she's really amazing at food and nutrition stuff and that's what she loves to do so my brain was very active it was really pondering creatively but it was about something that was really meaningful and deep and something that I'm moving towards and creating. It was a creative state. It wasn't ruminating. It wasn't about me. It was about also... I had the idea of sharing what I would spend my money on if I made X amount of money. I would buy walnuts and the best nuts and seeds and coconut oil, etc., from realrawfood.com, which I haven't done in quite a while because I haven't had the means since I've been working less after being traumatized in the hospital last year. So I was thinking, my brain was active. I wasn't focusing on my breath at all. And I looked at the results after, and I don't know if there was a mistake, but it showed I had zero seconds active, zero recoveries, because my brain didn't go into the active state according to their algorithm at all, and 85% calm time. So I don't know if this was a mistake. I'm going to try this again tomorrow morning and do the same sort of thing. I'm not sure if the breathing coherence did that to my brain, because I don't think I've ever done breathing coherence and then within the hour done a muse headband thing. I could try it again tonight. I could do 10 minutes of coherence and then 10 minutes of muse and see what happens because my brain was very calm. So I'm curious about this algorithm of the brain being very calm but very active because it's no use having a calm brain that's calm just by focusing on the breath and making it, forcing it to be calm based on focusing on the breath. That doesn't have very much value, but if we can be very active in our brains, but very calm, that has value for sure. So these are my screenshots. It could have been a screw up of somehow like a one off, but we will see.
And this could actually be showing that breathing in coherence is a lot more powerful than focusing on one's breath and using a muse headband. So if the two were combined, there could be something even more powerful there. So I've decided to maybe work on the expert level of coherence breathing and and master that to some extent because it's very physiological. And I've been pondering this idea of physiology and also being connected to the real, like connected to nature is something real. And having the brain active and calm and being really active with life and what's real. Because being active full of abstractions about the self and past and memory and it's all a bunch of noise. But perhaps creativity isn't this active noise. Perhaps it's calm. Maybe this is hypofrontality, transient hypofrontality, the brain being very active and alive, but not noisy and having this diversion and wastage of energy. And I wonder if it's choiceless awareness that Krishnamurti talks about and passive alertness, the brain being passive, but very alert, very active, very sharp, very fluid, very pliable. And this morning, something came to mind related to the physiology bit, which is that it seems like there's an irony in that when we don't have enough matter, material, in terms of nutrition, in terms of, say, minerals, micronutrients, so we don't have enough matter at the micro level, then at the macro level, it's a lot easier for us to accept living meaningless, habitual lives. Believing in the values that society has programmed into us, like wealth, success, power over others, etc., etc. And then, as we go along, we're wasting more of our precious minerals because we're not seeing, we're projecting program values and moving according to that. So we're wasting energy, we're wasting our nutrition. And then eventually some people have like a spiritual emergency or emergence of some kind where life feels really meaningful and we're moving in this new field of meaning as a reaction to having lived so long in this meaningless life, which correlates to not having proper nutrients. So low meaning, low Nutrition at the micro level of matter and meaning is something subtle. It's not something that we think of as material, but it's tied into the material in that we can't make right meanings and create right meanings and live by meaning if we don't have the right nutrition. So the significance is tied into the micro physiology, the micronutrition, the micro material matter. And then we can also get lost in that we have this reactive spiritual experience. It feels hyper-spiritual to compensate for the lack of meaning that as we've lived, we've accumulated all this time with very little meaning. So then as a reaction, we feel this short period of time with so much meaning. And then the trouble with this is that after that falls away, even if we integrate that and feel like life has quite a bit more meaning, we crave 
this hyper-spiritual space again. Whereas if we have the right nutrition, the right nutrients, the right matter at the micro level, we can meet life and it feels meaningful every single moment and we're not looking for a particular meaning or a particular experience or a particular hyped up inflated experience. We're not looking for experience at all because we have the nutrition to look at life and what's right in front of us, see it, be with it, meet it, move with it, and see the meaning and the significance of it in the moment. So we have the right micro matter of minerals. We can see the meaning and significance of each moment. And then we're not turned into spiritual seekers because that is looking for more meaning away from the moment because we can't see the meaning of the moment. So that's why I feel like these micronutrients help with seeing. They help with seeing the moment now. So it's not a bad thing per se to have this hyper-spiritual experience, but part of what I've talked about with myself with harvest, perceive, gesture, and body is being able to move with the moment now and bring some of that experience as informing how we can move each moment in daily life and bring that inflated experience down to daily life existence. And maybe instead of feeling the meaning of the entire cosmos in a moment, we can move in one way of the new thousand ways that we did in that state in one moment and share that meaning in a gesture and have that put into our system as part of our neurology, part of our brain cells. And that can be done more effectively when we have the right nutrition to build those physiological structures as we're able to see and meet the moment. So the moment moves us, the moment then informs our system and it's a type of Gaia feedback. So if we have proper nutrition on the micro level, we can live a spiritual, meaningful life every moment on the macro level. I don't know if I said it exactly this way, but I was seeing it a little bit differently. When we meet the moment, the moment, and we see it, we see the meaning and significance. It's there as an epiphenomenon. And then we're moving in that field. Whereas when we're moving in the field of thought, the past memory, and the self, each moment creates a feeling. And feeling is part of memory, which is part of the self. So we're moving based on our personal feelings. And a lot of times we take that to be so great. Like if thoughts aren't good and logic, well then let's go with our emotions and feelings. But that's also conditioned from the past. So we see the meaning and the significance, not the feeling which ties into recognizing it as a past experience. Like this feels similar to when I was at this place when I was a child. It's still tied into memory. And those feelings are tied in into the epiphenomenon of the self. And I wrote in text, it's interesting how when we're having strong feelings and maybe showing emotions, some people say, what's the matter? So the answer is in the question. 
something about matter, something about not having the right nutrition. And it's interesting because this micro level of nutrition, if that's not correct, then we can't see meaning in the macro level, which isn't material at all. But when we don't understand how our bodies work, if we're not feeding our bodies right, we don't work to understand how our physical apparatus work. How can we use that physical apparatus to make, create, see, perceive, move with meaning? And then when we can't do that, we're all looking for meaning somewhere else in the, than the moment because we can't see the moment because we're blinded by our seeking. So I'm saying that mainly to illustrate that even what I've been talking about with myself, and I have talked about this along the way, if we turn those experiences into something we're seeking again, by seeking something again, we are making ourselves blind. So we're back to the original mechanism that is a problem, which is seeking something away from the moment, not seeing the moment, not meeting it. And this morning I felt these bursts of joy and energy and I wasn't sure if it was from the coherence breathing or if it was from the organic yerba mate I'll need to continue to experiment with that so I thought of a couple things one is about how some people like me won't be able to pay for coaching So I was thinking about creating a way that people can pay by IOU, which is I owe the universe. Because it's not about people paying me money, but giving their gifts to humanity. And that's part of what happens in trans consciousness and map consciousness is we see we do have gifts to give humanity. And we attempt to give them and a lot of times we fail, but we can get up and keep on moving in that capacity to give. And then I realized that could be part of the process of a person designing their dream lifestyle. And that would be a way to apply for this IO the universe. So this is the way I'm going to live when I trance and blah, blah, blah. And that movement of attempting to design one's dream lifestyle is getting in alignment with what for, transcend what for, why. So regardless of if I utilize that or not, it's interesting because starting to think about how one would live the life of one's dreams is from the very get-go, before one even completes that process, the very start of that is a movement of saying, I want to live. I want to live a meaningful life. I want to live a life giving my gifts. The very intention without even doing anything yet is that very movement that is that creative movement of trans consciousness. Seeing that we have gifts and wondering how we're going to give them and live them out. And I thought of another thing to do with that is that An attempt to make meaning, make one's own meaning out of extreme state experiences. 
is again that original act in that we're moving into alignment with the fact that we can create our perceptions. So map consciousness and trans consciousness is a space of creative perception. Some other energy is coming into play and creating new perceptions. And by considering those experiences, those extreme state experiences and making different meaning out of it, we're creating new perceptions. So again, we're in alignment with that original movement of map consciousness. And this is an intentional way of sitting down and making meaning, but it's still that same movement. So what I'm trying to point to is that it's not about making a particular meaning or once I have a hundred meanings or once I have my favorite meaning that I've ever created. It's just the movement to make new meaning out of something, to see something anew. And that's the main trouble is we can't see things anew. We can't see what's right in front of us anew. We're seeing it in terms of the old. So even taking an old experience, an old big, meaningful, extreme stay experience that we had interpreted for us and called mental illness and then going back to that, making new meaning out of it, all of a sudden we're creating perception. So we're in that movement of creating perception. And it's not about the right meaning, the wrong meaning, the meanings we're going to get rewarded for, punished for. It's making meaning and creating our perceptions ourselves through our own insights and of course, one doesn't want to get lost in that forever. That's something that I've been working on myself is I made a lot of different meaning and context and that was super helpful to crowd out the whole gravity of not only everything I've been told, but everything I'd experienced, everything that was designed into my life and move into not only creating meaning and perceptions, but moving through life with new meaning in my eyes and the ability to see and create new meaning and unfold the life of my dreams. So moving as our capacity to create meaning, to create perception, is our uniquely human capacity. So as I just watched myself say that last part, I realized that that is the reversal of what I was going on and on about, about the micro level of nutrition in the body making it so we have the capacity to see meaning so matter micro matter can see meaning and then when we can see meaning something subtle that we don't consider matter this seeing the meaning something so subtle that's not matter changes the whole unfolding of our gross, physical, material life. So it's a cycle. It's a flow. It's a flux and flow of energy and information flow. And how that unfolds our life. How that manifests as our life as we move through life. When we can see meaning, we unfold a meaningful life that we experience as our physical, material life. And if we get our physical, material life right at the micro level that's so small and subtle we can't see it, 
then we can see the subtle and that unfolds and manifests a new life. I wonder if you can see what I'm saying. Seeing the subtle mind becomes matter, becomes our physical existence. And we can get with that by the gesture of taking care of our physical structure that is going to be that which we walk through life with, which is our perceptual gesturetic apparatus. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.